This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me, powered by digital media. Today's sponsor is SoFi. SoFi finds great people to invest in and backs them for life. Besides great rate loans, they offer career services and events for every member. Find out more at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Mac Weldon, which makes a bunch of cool stuff, including the socks I am wearing right now. They also make shirts, underwear, hoodies. I've worn them on stage at Code Media. Troy, can you remember what those socks were look like? They were awesome. The floral pattern? Yeah. Amazing. They were awesome. They're super comfortable. They're antimicrobial, which means you can wear them a bunch and they won't stink. I'd still wash them if I were you. If you want, you can go ahead and order a pair. And if you don't like them, you can keep them for free. And when you do order them, use the promo code RECODE. You get 20% off. That helps me. You can keep making more podcasts, just like the one we're having right now. Troy, how'd you like that ad? Felt native. It felt native. This mm-hmm. is Troy Young. Troy, what is your title at, at over at Hearst? President of Digital at Hearst Media. What, what is it? President Hearst Digital Media. You can't even remember. Well, it's this. I mean, I know what my job is, Peter. This, so this I, is the reason I'm asking. We, we had a version of this conversation before at the Code Media Conference. I said, you're like one of eight guys who has a digital title over at Hearst. It's a big company. It's a big company. Yeah. So describe in, in plain English what your job is at Hearst. One of the story uh, publishers in America. So I'll, I'll kind of uh, I'll go through a list of things. I think my job is to accelerate change in the company digitally. Uh, I think my job is to build digital revenue and profit. I think my job is to build better digital products and to essentially accelerate the change of a magazine business into a very, very different type of business that lives by the moment and lives across a multitude of channels that define our media landscape. All right, we're going to break that down into dumber person's English, the kind I can understand. Hearst publishes a bunch of magazines? Hearst has essentially five divisions. One of them's a magazine business. And you you work for that group? I work for the magazine division, yes. So that's Cosmo, Esquire, Popular, Always Bizarre, Pop Mechanics, Mechanics. Driver, Road and Track, Good Housekeeping, Red Book. And so your job is not to take those and create iPad versions of those magazines? I mean, well, maybe, we, maybe you do some of that, but that's not I the mean, core of what you do. I have a group of people that do that, um, but my job is to make those magazines relevant in a different media environment. Right. So this is why I wanted to have you on, because it's an interesting idea, right? Because normally when we talk to someone who makes magazines, the traditional question, I asked David Remnick this a few weeks ago, Kara asked Joanna Coles, why does one make a magazine? So you don't have to really justify that answer, but we can talk about it. But your job is to say, no, but these I guys think, are, you know what? I think it's yeah. an excellent question. Good. And, and it would it. actually broaden the question. Let's Peter. do it. Let's do it. Because I think the question is, what is magazine media in the future? Well, what, it's, what is magazine media right now? Though, right. It's there's two things. There's the actual magazine. Right. And then there's stuff that comes under the brand of the magazine that you might find on a website or other places now, including a tablet version or yeah. a Snapchat channel. All the digital stuff is your job. 100%. Okay, yeah. so we got to that part. Yeah. So, okay, you want to go in the magazine media of the future? That no, I just think it's an interesting concept because, I, you know, why did it exist before? And, and I was personally interested in this, and I investigated it. Yeah. And it took me back to around 1730. There was a, a publication, I think one of the earliest examples of a magazine called Gentleman's Journal. And I think it had a lot of the attributes of what magazine media did ultimately become. And it was as follows. It, it was, A, targeted to a very specific type of person and intellectual, educated man of that era, you know, had a kind of curatorial foundation in that it made 200 broadsheets that existed in London at the time into something that people could make sense of. It was really iconic in that they had the same image of St. James Gate on the front page every issue. 
And I think there's a lot in that. And that format, more or less, lasts a couple hundred years. Up until now, and still exists. I think it's going through, like, the thing is, is that I am, without any bullshit, incredibly optimistic about the times we are in for magazines. And I think that why that is worth saying is because I think if you flash back maybe five years ago, people were incredibly pessimistic about the sector. And they may even be, you even may even be pessimistic about it today. Although I would, I would argue that you work for a company that's not unlike my company. Uh, in terms of its, you know, of the way that there we is go- more than one person who agrees with you about that. Yeah, the way we make media is the same. Right. So the thing about the magazine that seems particularly anachronistic today and has been for a while is, hey, it's a thing that comes out once a week, once a month. It's aggregated content. It's all made by the same company usually, but it's fixed. And you have to go through it, and an editor has assembled it for you and said, this is what you should right. read. Here are the articles. Right. I love magazines. I moved to New York because I wanted to work at magazines. I think they're great. But in a world where everything now is coming to you or many things are coming to you because your friend recommended it to you on Twitter or Facebook or you picked it up from wherever, or you picked it up from Apple News, which is an aggregator of magazines, it seems hard to imagine that people are going to value long run this static collection of things at least bound as a, beyond just sort of a novelty, right? But you hear this all the time, and your job is to say, well, yeah, my job is I to mean, make something let me, new. Let me, let me try to take what you just said yeah. and, and talk about the things that are important moving forward and things that have to change massively. So where I would start with it is that feeling that you get or that you got, the reason that you said you wanted to be in the magazine business, which is that feeling of getting a publication that meant something to you and getting that particular issue and opening it up. And, you know, the people call it this, there's a German word called Wunderkammer, which means a cabinet of curiosities. And I think that a well-edited publication, you know, curated and presented to you against a set of interests that you have, particularly because it wasn't, it didn't have the sort of, it wasn't as demanding as news. There was an element of leisure built into it, right? And, and as a result, it was sort of somewhere between news and entertainment and was, you know, a really, really, I think, an experience that people valued. And the interesting thing that happened in, in, in magazine media is the brands themselves became incredibly famous, much more famous than the businesses underneath them, actually, because as David Carey would say, they're the world's most famous medium-sized businesses. And David uh, Carey's your boss. Yeah. And so, but what I think has changed, I mean, clearly is what we called months to moments, you know, months don't matter anymore, moments matter. I think that the feedback mechanism, which massively influences how you think about content changes, right? Because you're fed back data all the time about what you need to write. I think that we live on the wire just like A&E lives on the wire, just like ESPN lives on the wire. Increasingly, the media types that we can create are incredibly varied. And we now exist across, you know, a dozen points of light, right? These platforms where our content lives. So underneath of all that, what I think is really good about magazines is they've always been incredibly nimble. Whereas one person who I won't name said they are the cockroaches of the media world. And the reason that that I think he said that is because they're just incredibly adaptable entities. That's what magazines are. So I think a lot of people who've worked in magazine media and people who know people who still have jobs in magazine media would would not think of the people who work in magazines particularly adaptable. They seem like sort of, in many ways, sort of old guard, right? Like people who haven't figured out how to adapt. Right. But I think within the medium and the construct that they live in, they were incredibly adaptable to the needs of marketers and to the changing cultural landscape. Because what's really important to magazines is that they're culturally relevant and evolving as such all the time. I think those things that I just described, which are brand. When you live across lots of points of light, brand matters a lot. 
right? Magazines do that incredibly well. Adaptability, I think, matter. Point of view in modern media matters a huge amount. Super serving a very specific audience with an idea, with a type of content that's driven by editors or the point of view, that's really, really important today. And that's the commonality. I think one of the things you're talking about with my employer, Vox Media, right? We have a bunch of different brands. They all produce stuff primarily on the web. We curate and aggregate and create our own stuff. Uh, and the idea is there's value there because we're presenting it to you as Recode or as Vox or as SB Nation. Right. So that's the commonality, right? But we struggle with it all the time. Like, are people reading stuff at our site? Do they care that it came from Recode? Is it something that it's only lives on social and got passed along to them on Facebook? That's the real struggle we have. And we have the advantage of being digitally native, right? We don't have the sort of legacy of, well, we have a magazine that has as many pages. We've got to produce this many ads. And I think that's the challenge that you guys have. But It's not a challenge. It's an asset. It's an advantage. What is the advantage? Well, the, first of all, the advantage is, is the way I produce content against the platform with 150 editors that all work collaboratively around technology, that share ideas, that share content, that push out that content against our platform and all the platforms that surround us. That was identical. Right. right? And we have brands, Elle, Mary Claire, Cosmo, etc. You have brands. But the way I think about it, and this, this actually came into the conversation yesterday with David, is a good analogy here is like Tom Ford, right? And the way Tom Ford works is lots of people want to buy, very few people can buy the suit, okay. right? And the suit's 5,000 bucks. Aspirational. Very aspirational. But, but probably, it's, it, but you it's can the, get the socks. It's the DNA of the brand. Right. And then below the suit is the tie. And the ties are for guys like you and I. Right, it's a couple hundred bucks. It's a luxury purchase. It's expensive tie, but yeah, 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 yeah. But it's but that's and there's why. a seventy nine dollar Tiffany heart that, that everyone can buy at a mall. Like. Exact same idea. And then a step down from that is the fragrance, and the fragrance may be seventy bucks, right? And that's available through lots of retail channels, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think in our world, the way increasingly we think about magazine media is it's all anchored in point of view. There's lots of editors that interpret that. The magazines are still going on and in many cases are incredibly you know, good businesses, very valuable businesses. But the business exists in tiers, and I'm not saying that in a pejorative right. way. No, but it's the it, flagship. It's the really cool car at the dealership, but maybe you're not going to buy that right. super expensive BMW. Yeah, so maybe I, Glendad, Harper's Bazaar does a shoot with Sharon Stone, and you know that's a very, very expensive of piece of media that's created and distributed exclusively in the magazine to quite a small group of influencers and then below that we're figuring out how that particular brand and media idea is relevant to a lot more people yep. right that makes a lot of sense so this is getting good i'm going to stop it now like a like a bad you're already going to read an ad we're going to sell more stuff and then we're going to talk Today's episode of Recode Media is brought to you by FrameBridge. FrameBridge is a cool startup that is disrupting the framing market. I don't think you knew the framing market needed to be disrupted, but it does. If you go to a traditional framing store, they're going to charge you a ton of money. FrameBridge takes care of that with cool technology. It makes it super easy and affordable to custom frame the stuff you love. I've got something I'm going to send to them. It is a signed Kung Fu Panda 3 poster signed by Jack Black to my son, Jonah. I don't know if Jonah appreciates that. What a great dad I am, but... But one day he will. Here's how it works. They send you a mailing kit for your artwork, your posters, whatever. You send it back to them. In a couple days, they send you back your stuff ready to hang. You can also upload pictures from your phone, your laptop, Instagram, whatever. It's awesome. Pricing starts at just 39 bucks, and all shipping is free, like it should be. Bonus for our Recode listeners this month, go to framebridge.com, enter the offer code RECODE. You save 15%. We get a special star next to our name, which is good for us. Everyone wins. Thanks, Framebridge. Troy, I was not quite honest. We have another ad. Then we'll really be ad-free. So hang on one second. 
This episode is also brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is transforming the financial world by offering great rates on things like student loan refinancing, personal loans, mortgages. It's a pretty simple process. They look at your financial potential, and if there's promise, they're going to back you for life. So if you borrow with SoFi, you get an awesome set of perks, too. Career services, member happy hours, nationwide networking events, maybe there's liquor at those things, unemployment protection, even an entrepreneur program. The idea is SoFi succeeds when their members succeed. So they'll do all they can to help their members out. Learn more about what they can offer at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Nice one. Yeah. That's Joan Bradford. Joanne Bradford, who I'm familiar with, I used to work with her right. back in the day. And she's not a too good long friend ago. of Caro's. If you're going to do full disclosure, yeah, she's got a great family too. Right. She's great. We love Joanne Bradford. <laughs> we love SoFi.com. Right. So, so let's, let's talk a bit about your business some more. So, what is the thing that you, you, you took this job when? A couple years ago, right? Yeah, two and a half, three years. You, ago. Prior to that, you've been at Same Media? As a president of Same Media, yeah. And Same Media was a couple different things. It was a media company, it was a publishing company platform? Uh-huh. Well, Say Media was really an amazing, amazing experience and a real evolution, if, if you care to know about it. I mean, it was, I had worked as an executive running agencies, digital agencies from the very beginning. My first, my first role after I quit graduate school was working in media and the newspaper. And then I started working, the category of digital agencies was, was a brand new thing. And I was really, really young running digital agencies because nobody else knew what they meant. And I decided after doing that for a long time, I was living in New York doing that, working for Omnicom, that at 40, three kids, if I, if I wasn't going to go do something entrepreneurial, it would never happen. And I had met these young guys from Yale, uh, really super smart guys, and they had been financed by First Round, and they had built something called Video Egg, which was originally a a platform for taking video off your cell phone or off your desktop on your machine. This is around right. the time YouTube started. Right, right. It was one of the sort of, it wasn't a YouTube competitor, it was in that group of But things. it had a different idea because yep. it processed all of the video on your desktop. But it was exciting because to people at that time Massively because exciting. YouTube was exciting. So right. there's a whole cluster of companies that fell into that group. Right. And the ambition of it was sort of three-legged. The ambition was we will provide the complex infrastructure to all kinds of sites that aspire to do video. The second is we will ultimately feed them with content. So we will ingest lots of content from content providers and we will provide them with that service. And the third part of it was we will monetize them. We will monetize it for them. But by the way, it also was a user-generated mechanism. So mm-hmm. people could upload their own video. Right, and the same media merged with Video Egg? No, Video Egg was my thing. Like we no, built it. We video built a media, you know, we, No, we built the first overlay ad units that YouTube used. We created like an engagement network and the idea of cost per engagement came out of Video Egg, all of that. It was actually a very fast growing, successful business. Grew to 50, 60 million in revenue very quickly. And then we found ourselves maybe thinking out a little bit too far, but at the time we were like, this ad network thing, which ultimately is what it was, has a lifespan. And we need to own content, and we need to. We always had a platform mindset, and the way that content was being provisioned in the world sucked. Right, and there was a period then where you became a publisher. You started. Well, we acquired Six Apart. Right, right, and that was that was the merger. All those guys from Six Apart that had built a blog platform. Yeah, and then we started acquiring vertical niche. Read Write Web was Read one Write of them. Read Write Web. I built Exo Jane right. and Exo Vane, and we did. We bought a, a really great niche, a sort of living blog called Remodelista. There's a whole bunch of them. Right, so you got into that, built it up, and then it sort of fell apart, and there's a diaspora of you guys from same media who have really interesting jobs. Well, I left several years ago, like four years ago, um, feeling like I had done it for six years. If I was going to make any money from it, you know, that time had come and gone. 
and that uh, that they could do they could they needed other things. So let's bring you into the, your current job that you took that how long ago? Well, then I just took a little bit of time and yeah. I advised a bunch of companies like Refinery Twenty Nine and. Uh, a ticketing company called Songkick now, and and I had met David Carey, and he said, "Can you help me figure out what to do?" Right, and so I started spending time at Hearst. So David Carey runs magazines for Hearst. Yes, well known, well liked by many people editor. So up to this point, until recent history, digital magazines there was a PDF or a tablet version of magazines, and then if then there was also usually a website for a magazine. Right. Usually there was a, a split between the people who made the print magazine and the digital magazine, right. and the, the digital people were lower tier. Mm-hmm. Um, never seemed to be a sort of maybe the it never worked maybe, right. No, and the print magazine would sort of grudgingly show up on the website or not or behind a paywall. And that's the sort of world you stepped into at yes. Hearst. And so what have you changed? Everything. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is finding a true north that is the consumer. I think that the company, um, despite many people's uh, hard work to lay the foundation that I was able to grow, was maybe a little bit afraid of disrupting itself. And I think that the true north was more about business preservation as opposed to what does the medium demand of a magazine brand and what does the consumer demand. And not only that, I would say that historically magazine companies haven't had a lot of agility with technology and product. So I had a great gift at Hearst, and it made me very, very successful there. And and it, it is as follows. I had an individual that was prepared to remove roadblocks at every corner because it's it's an environment where there's a lot of interests. And I had a structure where I could make change very quickly and aggressively. And that structure is as follows. We are not organized by silo, like technology, product, strategic decisions are made by L, made by Cosmo. Like, there's not that vertical alignment. I took 19 properties. And from an editorial strategy and approach, from a platform perspective, from an ad product perspective, and from a management perspective, an audience development, all of that, and I made it horizontal. So I operate it like it's a single property. And the economics. Do you operate those magazines? As all the digital assets. The digital assets. Yes, we operate them horizontally. So you're not telling Joanna Coles what to do with her magazine. I'm 100% not telling Joanna Coles what to do. That wouldn't work. But I'm definitely influencing the trajectory and direction of Cosmo digitally. Yes. Right. So what I have now, and the luxury I had is I have a PL, I have 500 people that do the same thing that Vox does. We have an incredible platform that we've built with a very dedicated product and technology team called MediaOS, and I can tell you all about that. No, it's put killer. people to sleep. It's killer, and it's real differentiator for us globally, and because these are global businesses now, and it's you know so digital is changing the entire sort of structure of how you organize a magazine business digitally or globally. I have an incredible editorial operations team and a team that manages you know a couple hundred editors. You know, I think that the first thing that we did was we got velocity up, and then now we're going to velocity. When you made more stuff, so you could put it. You know, we made more stuff with more urgency. That was what the internet was talking about. That was more personal. That was more relevant right now. So the people who make the stuff that I read, if I go to Uh Cosmo.com, they work for you, or they work for Joanna. They work for their editor, Amy O'Dell, who works for Kate Lewis, who works for me. Got it. So there, so there is a separate staff still. There's one staff that produces a print magazine and one staff that produces a digital asset. Yes. It seems logical to ask why you wouldn't combine those two. There's a simple reason. Because the production processes and the way you think about content are 100% different. Right. So 
how long do you think we're going to be in that world where there's two different groups? Or I mean, a lot of publications are saying, look, we can't be in that world. Everyone's got to be able to do everything. Maybe some people are better at some things than other, but you can't just be a print magazine writer. You can't just be a print magazine editor. You've got to figure out how to make this stuff work on the web or Snapchat or whatever. You know, listen, I think it's different for different publication. And I think that the thing that underlines all of modern media is efficiency. So if you're not, you know... Great media has always been efficient, meaning we figure out how to make something once and sell it again and again and again yeah. and maximize you know, the value of that particular piece of content. All that matters to me is not whether this is Joanna's team or another team. What matters to me is are we cost-effectively making content that is addictive? that people want, that makes people feel things, right? And so at the time, and whether this is true in 10 years, I don't know, I don't care. I care about right now. At the time, the muscle that had been developed for decades around a sort of very top-down, quality-driven, curatorial, month development process, you know, extreme, you know, focus and detail in the edit, and that whole process and way of thinking about content was standing in the way of progress. So we changed it. I put them in a different space. I built an entire environment. So you guys in this new space, you need to go faster. Well, we have many, many spaces. Right. But, but Cosmo in particular, we built Club Cosmo in another building. Right. Intention for that reason. 100%. So I want to skip ahead to something that I'm asking a lot of folks about. A lot of people are talking about it. It's kind of already old hat, right? The idea, a year ago this was controversial. Now it seems old hat that if you are a publisher, you publish under your own site, your own property, and you also publish through Facebook. You also publish through Snapchat. You publish your stuff. You hand your stuff over to big platforms like Facebook, Snapchat, Apple, right, right. Twitter, yeah. and you figure out some way of making money there. You're not trying necessarily to drive traffic back right. to you guys. Are you guys wholeheartedly in that, or are you still 100%. sort of... So that's no issue for you. No. Did that take some convincing? Not huge. No. no. So when Facebook came to you... Nine months ago or whenever it was. I thought, just like the video business, that the distribution of content was a natural evolution of the media business and that media rights would ultimately flow with content. So, In other words, advertising would be attached to content, whether right. the construct was native or whatever. And then, again, back to this question we had at the beginning, right? The idea of the magazine sort of presenting the stuff under one brand. If I'm reading a Esquire article, but I'm reading it on Facebook... Right. How do you ensure that sort of you're building up an Esquire brand if I'd maybe never show up at Esquire.com? Uh, you know, I think that a lot of ways. I don't, I'm not hesitating because I think I don't think it's a hard question. I think that you have to be very clear about what your point of view is. You have to think hard about what your brand means at the level of a photograph, at the level of a video. You know, I think you always have to work to get people to recirculate and move back and add another, like get them to, to consume another piece of content on, a, on an owned property uh, if possible. But listen, I mean, the big upside here is that these magazines like Esquire, you know, despite the fact that it's a remarkable pedigreed magazine, had a fairly narrow audience, right? There's an opportunity for Esquire to be massive. Esquire exists as, a t as an idea, right? This kind of thinking man's idea is a big idea, right? And it's transcendent over time. So it exists as a television station, and it can exist on Facebook and on Snapchat and on .com. And on, I mean, the great luxury of having a, of a wonderful brand like Esquire or Cosmo is that actually we can be a lot bigger in the future. Because these distribution platforms give us an opportunity is, to be right. way but bigger. This is a new way of thinking, right? Because up until recently, it was like, all right, we'll, we'll put it on the web or maybe Facebook or maybe YouTube, whatever it is. But the idea is to drive people back to the site. That's where we're making money. Are you able to make money on the other platforms? We're making a lot of money. 
And that's what I spend my days doing. In addition to, you know, obviously thinking about where we're going as a content organization, which there's really good people thinking about, I want to find any place where my brand, my content, our production systems allow us to find new distribution. And in every one of those conversations, whether that's with Microsoft or with Snapchat or with Facebook, you know, there's a new world around revenue traveling with our content, whether that's shared because they're selling audience on, on our content, which happens in the case of Microsoft and happens in the case of Facebook, or we have opportunities to distribute branded content inside of those environments. I think increasingly what's happening is Listen, there's a million examples, but like two days ago, we're working with UTA in a production company, and we release a video that we're doing just as a way of understanding the content consumption patterns of men on Esquire. And, you know, it goes on to, to Facebook, say whatever you want, will, as to how they measure video views. But it gets, you know, in one day, it gets 9 million views. A lot of people looked at it or clicked at it or at least went through their feed. Tons of people. Yeah. Now, the production company couldn't do that. Why were we able to do that? Is because we've managed and nurtured and opened those distribution paths for a long time. And because our brand wrapped around that piece of content means something, right? So I think we create a lot of value in the system. And our job on an ongoing basis is to keep those pipes open and clean and make sure that our point of view is preserved. And I think that has extreme value in this new world that we're moving into. You were at the Code Media Conference. We yes. had to ask everyone who came on stage about Snapchat. I definitely want to talk to you about Snapchat because that's actually part of your job, right, is, is creating yeah. stuff for Snapchat. Cosmo was, was one of the first people right. to have a Discover channel. Yes. Snapchat, people were surprised that I think about all the brands they initially picked. They seemed sort of like old brands, and turns out a lot of them have been successful, Cosmo right. in particular. Right. And then you guys then went ahead and created a brand, a new brand, a joint venture with Snapchat, yes. Just for Snapchat. Yes. So Well, starting on Snapchat, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about that. So first of all, how did you make the Cosmo Discover channel work? Because other folks tried and didn't work. Cosmos is a seductive brand, A. It's a simple idea that you can, you know, that editors understand. I think we had tuned the content mix, many people involved doing this, but we had tuned the content mix through everything that we do. And remember, the dot-com grew from like 8 million uniques to 35 million uniques in a year and a half. So we got really good at figuring out what that 22-year-old girl wanted to read. That's the foundation. We know the mix of content that works. And we brought those instincts to Snapchat. We resourced it properly. We took the channel seriously and decided that we were going to make content that was anchored in the values of Cosmo and in what we learned on the dot-com, but designed How for many some. folks work on Cosmo well, Discover? Well, it's an integrated team with the dot-com team, but there's probably like nine people. Whose job it is to create stuff. Because the idea that's basically a mini magazine each day. Every day. Every day you get new stuff. Yeah. And but it's, it's very illustration intensive and right. there's a lot of You can't you just take get. stuff that was in the magazine or on the website and slap it or if you do well, you you gotta, The magazine content represents a very small... When, right. when we're making 50, 60, 70 articles a day, you know, the magazine ends up being a small Right, percentage. but the point is you're not just recirculating stuff that existed somewhere else. You have to make some new well, stuff. use it there. if it's relevant. Right. But yeah. And so that worked, and that worked, and you judge that based, because yeah. again, Snapchat's a weird property, at least by conventional digital standards. It doesn't refer traffic back to you, no. right? No. You have a limited set of metrics you can use to judge. How do you judge the success of that channel? Volume, loyalty, you know, swipe ups, time spent. Those are the then those are the stats that stats are what matter you. to me. Loyalty and, matters. To and me what can you share? The, and where where are you guys out there? I don't know what's public right now, Peter. You're probably catching me off guard, and, and our friend in the back will Your hairs on fire. This, but uh, it's a lot of people. Yeah, it's a you know. I'll give you a couple of stats. Just uh, 
I'm seeing numbers that look like over two and a half million a day, but more importantly, average session times of eight minutes a visit. So there's a couple million people. More than that. Or at least a couple of million different visits. Over a couple of million. Spending how much time per visit? Eight. Eight. So they're really engaged with this stuff. So that works well. Imagine that. That's a big media. I mean, by any measure, that's yeah. a big media problem. Yeah, no, no. On, on the web, if someone stays at your uh, on your page for a couple seconds, you're right. very excited. <laughs> the and depth then, is cool. So that works sure. really well. And then you, and then who has the idea to create a new channel for Snapchat? Because this is a new idea for them. Did they bring it to you? You bring it to them? I brought it to them. Yeah? Yeah. And said what? I said, first of all, I went to Joanna, and I said, I think that this is really important distribution. And I like the Snapchat guys a lot. And let's take them an idea. And uh, to be honest with you, part of it was inspired by watching my kids use it and the importance it, it had in their lives. And I wanted to create a kind of high-end, aspirational millennial media brand and that had a really strong kind of market focus. And that was where the idea started. We worked on it at Hearst, and we, we started working on it with Snapchat and made a deal. And it's called? Sweet. Sweet. And the idea is, so I go there. It doesn't say sweet brought to you by Cosmo or Hearst. I'm sure that no one who uses Snapchat we tried understand. That, but they rejected yeah. it. Yeah. And the idea is they don't know. It's a brand they've never seen before. There's right. no sort of obvious indication of what it is. They're just going to click on it just because they like the logo or the color of the circle. Or Well, I think that's a little bit of a uh, interim challenge with yeah. their interface, is what I would call that. Because I think at some point you need more signal than a color. Right. And, a and logo. We, we wrote about this. There's going to be sort of a magazine like yeah, that. Yeah, there's got to be change. something else there. But the, so what, what is in there when I swipe in? It's different than what's in the You know what's, I mean, are you interested in the media idea? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the tagline, as Joanna said on stage, is love something new every day. So it's about things that we love in our world. I think it's anchored in amazing crafted products, travel and experiences. So it's, it's culture, it's travel and it's market and with a large kind of uh, focus on fashion and beauty. What's I think interesting about it is it's of the time in that it's not entirely female or male. It has value to Right, both. it doesn't say that. No. You have to sort of guess. Well, I think that both genders can find something valuable. And that was intentional. You said we want to make this something that dudes could like, too, without saying that specifically. Right. That's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, and what have you learned? Which from is what? historically, by the way, a no-no in the media business. Right, right, right. And everything goes in a vector, right? Yeah. Or a quadrant if you're in the movie business. So what did you learn from that experience of launching a brand new brand in Snapchat? A, that they're a really powerful distribution environment. B, there is always a shit ton of work to do to build a new media brand. Yeah, I imagine it's pretty tough. Media to brands are hard someone. to build, right? They're, they're hard they, to build. And again, time. like there's no other signal there like we talked about. Like it doesn't, you know, I guess you guys could take out billboards and, and TV ads to advertise your right. Snapchat channel, but that seems kind of counterproductive. So right. you've got a... You've got a no, you've got I think a we, m- we have to imagine it as a you know, media brand just like all of our others that has lots of touch yeah. points. And, you know, then you have to go about doing all the hard work that it takes to build social following and, you know, dot-com distribution and all that stuff. Can you imagine now replicating this somewhere else on a Facebook, on a Twitter, starting a a platform, a specific brand? Yeah, I love doing that kind of thing. I just think you have to be really careful. I mean, another example is the partnership that we built with Lenny Letter. uh, Lena Dunham's thing. Yeah. You, You know, they kind of came out of the gates you know, I think pretty, pretty quickly with a media idea that people now, like I I talk to a lot of people about it that know what it is, their media distribution strategy, which every media company you have to be incredibly clear about, was very different. And I thought really thoughtful, which is we're going to very quickly build an email, you know, list, subscription list. And that'll be our first And that's based on Lena Dunham is a 
popular, powerful celebrity, she is going to use that to launch a thing by talking about it. Right. It's Lena and her partner, Jenny. And that's where Lenny comes from. And on the strength of her social following and her personality and her brilliance, actually... It's built a media brand in a very short period of time. Right. And this is this is a thing that you've heard about for years now, really since the first web, right? Is, oh, celebrities will be their own brands. Well, but products, they're different. But it's, it's, they're very, it's you know, very, there's a lot of naivety in that. Well, deal. most of it hasn't worked. Yeah. But this case it has. Well, there's a couple important differences. First of all, she didn't call it Lena's letter, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a really smart thing. She's not the editor. She hired an editorial team. Right. This is a thing that I like that I've blessed yeah. and bringing to you. Right. And, and I think they had a really sound distribution strategy that, that email was an underappreciated direct line of communication with people. And, uh, and it gave them a windowing opportunity, which is a really good idea. How much of your ability to experiment and try new things and disrupt yourself comes from the fact that, that Hearst, unlike the other big publishers, has uh, basically a, a long lifeline of money coming from None of TV? It. None ESPN. Of just let's just if anyone's listening and they haven't understood, Hearst owns twenty twenty five percent. I should know this mm-hmm. of ESPN. Mm-hmm. So it's a, just a geyser of cash. There's a lot of really successful businesses in Hearst. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I won't get into the entire history. Of Here, Hearst. let's make it simple. How much of your ability to do what you're doing comes from the fact that Hearst is seems to be financially stable, unlike your peers? I hate to be too intellectual in answering. Oh no. Maybe they're a good parent creating a good environment which allows me to do that, right, because of the stability of the company. Yeah. But I deliver a P&L, and I'm highly accountable to that P&L, just like I would be in any other business. So if you were so, at Time, Inc., if you were at Meredith, if you were at Conde, you'd approach it the same way? Yeah. Yeah. I know, yeah, I mean, first and foremost, at Hearst, you deliver your P&L. So that's incredibly important. One reason that... You know, I think we've got a lot of credibility in the business and that, you know, we're essentially taking our strategies and applying them to different divisions is because we're delivering really good business results. So, in fact, mostly what we do when we invest in something like a suite or whatever it is, we're essentially creating a fund that's off outside of the, you know, the P&L and saying, is this particular investment worth you know, putting money into? Oh, we could talk about investments. We could talk about BuzzFeed and Refinery, but we don't have another half hour to talk about it so we're going to end the conversation here we'll we'll pick it up at some point down the line thank you Troy thanks for coming appreciate it thanks you guys for listening if you enjoyed this interview as much as I did conducting it I have a favor to ask you should go to iTunes and subscribe if you're feeling really generous give us a review both those things are really helpful we get to keep making free content for you that way Speaking of free content, we have lots of other cool Recode podcasts. My boss, Kara Swisher, has the Recode Decode podcast. You probably know that one. Uh, Too Embarrassed to Ask, that's with my former colleague, Lauren Good, with The Verge. We still like her, though. Um, You can find us all on iTunes, recode.net. It's easy to find. We'd like to thank our sponsors this week, SoFi, Mac Weldon, Framebridge. You guys are awesome. Also awesome is Digital Media, which helps make all of this possible. I have an awesome guest next week, Nate Silver. You guys know who he is. We're going to talk about politics. That seems relevant. Sports was interesting too. See you next week.